I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Jeff Johnson, the author of Trouble Songs, a musicological poetics punctum books 2018, a new book, whose writing has appeared in Pan America, Jacket 2, Grandma, Sync Review, and elsewhere, who writes the music and culture series Book Album Book at Fanzine, and is at work on a performative critical investigation of analog digital interface, language-oriented poetry, digital language art, and experimental electronic music called Janky Materiality. And by Amy Paith who teaches courses here at Penn on, among other things, chick lit and post-feminism and Pixar and masculinity. Boy, do I want to take that class. And other fascinating topics whose first book is nearly complete, State vs. Culture, American Poets Laureate, 1945-2015, to the first ever history of the U.S. laureateship, a project that has already won before it's out the Northeast Modern Language Association's annual book prize. And by Whitney Trattine, a member of the English faculty here at Penn, whose research is in the history of the book and other text technologies from print to digital, whose forthcoming book, Cut, Copy, Paste, Cut, Slash, Copy, Slash, Paste, being staged on the Manifold Scholarship Platform through the University of Minnesota Press, identifies three fringe communities that assembled books from fragments of paper media in the 17th century, and whose current project is a chapter on a very bad poet of the 17th century, Edward Benlows, whose major book is an eight-canto divine epic about the soul's journey to heaven called Theophila. Is that how we pronounce it? Theophila. Yep, very right. pretentious. <laughs> and according to Whitney, and I quote, it is truly hard to read. <laughs> Whitney, you're spending a lot of time on a very bad poet. That's I a, just love bad poetry. Yeah. Can you say really briefly why you think bad poetry is valuable? Uh, I think oftentimes when poetry seems really bad, it's doing something formally interesting. Yeah. And I'm interested in that kind of how poets negotiate that. Yeah. So bad it's good is a, kind of a standard thing. About totally. Poetry. Yeah. yeah. That's, so that's cool. Jeff, thanks for making the trip. You're a Philadelphian, but you came today from Brooklyn. Absolutely. Yes. Pleasure where you to be teach here. at Pratt mm-hmm. and you also teach at Penn. Mm-hmm. And we don't know each other well, but I hear so many great things about you from everybody. Oh, well, that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and Amy, it's good to see you. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. What was the one, we did a poem talk together, but it was a few years ago. Do you remember what it was? Yeah, it was Laura Mullen's um, Enduring Brides, yeah. I believe. Yeah, It was, yes. was a few years ago, but it was a good talk. Yeah, it was really good. Well, we're here together, the four of us, to talk about seven sections or seven poems or seven pages in Rachel Zoff's book, Human Resources. The book was published by Coach House Books in Toronto in 2007. At Poem Talk's Jacket 2 page with our program notes for this episode, we'll provide a PDF copy of our selection, but I want to be on record urging everyone to buy a copy of the whole book. It's magnificent. Anyway, our poems 
uh, or sections appear on pages 73 through 79 of Human Resources. And Rachel Zoff's Pen Sound page makes available several readings given between 2007 and 2009, particularly in which she read sections of this work, including variously five of the seven sections we're talking about today. But recently, Rachel came into our studio here at the Writer's House and made a new recording of all seven sections. So here now is Rachel Zoff reading from Human Resources. How to Write for the Internet one write for skimmers, two write for peckers, three filter impose trespass, four include a link to the code, five think hyper, six think branding, seven think icon, eight tell your visitor where to go. Does the unreadable drive the reader from consuming to producing or all the 66 what good time is death bells and whistles of the ineffable? Despite les soixante retards like us born that uppity year, poetic Jewish coverage plus pregnant 3984 language isn't revolutionary enough. Ensconced in the academy, pleasuring in the beautiful excess of the unshackled referent, poetry can't stock food banks, warm bodies, or stop genocide from affecting my RSP. Ultimately, you'll be the funnel here at the brink should we brief you and brainstorm transgress the Markov chain before game over. Reading and gleaning from the same German root and Varda's picaresque travails among detritus. A multi-sexed academic friend calls our libidinal desire around knowledge masochistic. They'd prefer a softer approach to flesh out the whole picture. Like the angel of history, few 493 changes remember, or the sun plus the world ascending sick over and out the G4th poetic moment. Grasp what I can before it lose your soul for my sake. How potent is potent minus 16 holy nuns rots. Rather than kill the gift of art, consciousness can make it more eleven crosshairs are you so perverted that you thrill with fright plentiful. We don't draw inspiration to our begging bowl, then offer a nice drink. There's no moment of grace, hidden coherence, or cordial for your soul. We all enter the poem and flounder in words within 365, sounds in 1710, the indeterminate come live with the 45 stars of reason flow. By doing this attentively and not suspending disbelief, we don't have an at-hand solution for your vocabulary work or guilt by association, but would like to recognize collective effort not set in stone. Albino Lucille or Brie Gortes to get that edge trace within hyperdocument. Hyperdocument eyewash the surface below sitcom economies. Law governs fragments out of eyewash the 1132 on top of ambiguous bacon. If in search of truth because sin best dupe with decomposing tales, decomposing 5989 laugh within Brie Gortes to get that edge and sitcom economies, it's a mesh among transgression viral baby because decomposing 5989 troubleshoot against hyperdocument. E-spam succorants law governs 5685 because it's a 12578 between farty 2 or le jeu pour the keyword. Under piece of archive viral baby into sin, viral 1130 into aufhebung. Farty 64 troubleshoot but sovereign transgression over 37836 tales. Goat as 12913636 succorants pajamas within aufhebung gets five mesh beside sitcoms, economies, sin, trace. What's the use of Jews writing limericks, half not even paying? Check back on that stanza. This is a marathon, not a good governance issue. 5116-2107-5589. Poor with deception, Primo Levi felt his comments weren't value-added based on blind faith or the misaligned 185343 planets 9742. Facing the matronly woman behind the counter, how vulnerable to pare down to pitch when your inbox is a little 5176120044 cramped. 
If shit is the work of art representing the gift of the devoured father to the lost mother, if stories are our attempts to re-enter 36, if I have to keep making new work like food, let's just keep FAQs to things of substance, squander all perishable values in performance, grab one of the bottomed-out seats in the front row, and you could experience a 1305 444641 catharsis. So, Jeff... Um Famously, Rachel's off when she performs or has performed from this work. She reads very quickly. Uh, the studio uh, recording is quick, not quite as quick as some of the public performances. Can you just start us off by saying why it is uh, an alignment with what she's trying to do in the book that she reads so quickly? Mm-hmm. I think um, I was, I, I was, this is the first time I'm hearing this new recording, although I've been listening to the 2007 recordings and I've seen her perform live from this and some of the work that follows this. And that's really a hallmark of her style is that really compressing and enjamming language together. Um, she's working with these kind of torrents of expression um, that are sort of bum- that are potentially bombarding us. Mm-hmm. And um, so she tends to compress them together as as a way to illustrate that. But I was also struck in listening to this this new recording um, by the ways that in doing a recording, she's naturally going to articulate a little bit differently and be able to more subtly modulate the speeding up and slowing down, not yeah. to mention many things have happened between 2007 and now. So yeah, the work has changed for her. Yeah. Um, Whitney, in the back of the book, there's a notes page, page 93. And in there, we discover that one of the poems that we're looking at, the one on page 77 that begins Albino Lucille, that was made using Markov chain-based flash poetry generator. Um, Now, most of the work has been created by some kind of um, computer-aided or chance-generated machine for lack of a better word. Why would a poet do that? What effect is she trying to achieve by having something else make the words happen or help her make the words happen? Right. Well, so the Markov chain is a stochastic process. And in particular, it's a stochastic process that, and I'm not a mathematician here, so I'm just kind of going to do my best kind of loose description that I can. But my understanding is it's a stochastic process in which the current state is determined based on the current state, not on the future or past state of the system. So what happens is you get this kind of tumbling of language on this um, on page 77. And I actually thought that how she was reading it, um, although it was different than the performance, I thought that how she was reading it was very much like uh, Siri on mm-hmm. the recto pages, right, where it's kind of a tumbling of language, just really, really sped up. Whereas on the verso pages, so on the left side of the page, she would kind of pause on these essay moments, um, I think, to signal a little bit of that process. Yeah. So, Amy, this is sort of the, this gets us to the big the big topic here, which is, here's a book called Human Resources. This, the 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 pages that we chose are less directly about um, office language, office speak, but we urge everyone to read the, the whole book and, and you'll get more of it. But given what Whitney just said, 
what does that have to do with the overall project? What does it have to do with what we presume to be a critique of office speak? I mean, at the, in the opening um, poem or the op- opening segment we read, we're hailed immediately as skimmers, right? Um, sort What's of the line? S- superficial. Right for um, skimmers. Yeah, That's right so for great, skimmers. That's so great, isn't it? Um, yeah. And I mean, I guess. Um, That's what we do. We all write for skimmers, academics for sure. Yeah, and I think that's um, a concern of um, the text. Um, And it's, uh, to me, the kind of central um, ironic tension, or at least experience as a reader, um, is on the one hand, right, we are being hailed as um, kind of superficial um, skimmers um, kind of wading through text on our phones or superficially navigating this kind of surfeit of language or information or meaning. On the other, I think we're kind of asked, um, being mocked as such, to really slow down and almost um, painstakingly uh, close read certain words or phrases, especially because um, of the kind of Markov chain structure, structurelessness of the text as a whole, I can't help but to sort of dwell down into individual moments. So I suppose, in some sense, maybe we're being asked to slow down um, in terms of a, um, a one of the That's a great irony, then, that um, writing for skimmers, using an aleatory method, actually ironically or paradoxically gets us to slow down and do close reading of the phrases and sentences that we can grab onto. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff, the, f- the phrase how to write for the internet, I guess the first reaction is it's a book from Coach House, it's an avant-garde project, that's got to be ironic. But maybe it's not ironic. Well, there's something else lurking here in the, in the um, line that Amy just brought up. Um, talking about right for skimmers, that on the one hand, we can feel hailed as skimmers, um, as readers of, of this text or any text. But on the other hand, lurking in the background is machine reading um, and also sort of corporate and web writing that's intended to be read by web crawlers, et cetera, so kind of implanting um, metadata that will rise, raise certain texts um, to the surface of the internet, et cetera. So there's a, there's a type of communication that is um, happening through language, but is humans communicating with machines. That's cool. It, it, Whitney, go ahead, please. Yeah, yeah. No, I just wanted to say something on that because um, when I first read this, you know, I said how to write for the internet. I'm thinking, you know, people writing blogs, people tweeting, things like that. And then I reread it. I'm thinking how to write for the internet. And the internet is capitalized, right? I mean, so the internet's not a reader. So write for skimmers. And then we should also note, by the way, the second phrase, right? Write for peckers. <laughs> write for skimmers, write for peckers. Can we translate that? White people. Yes, and also phallic, phallic, yeah. yeah. I mean, pecking at your keyboard, of course, but also, yeah, peckers, penis, right? Um, And this is kind of what what does the internet want? It wants skimmers. It wants that kind of phallic discourse. I mean, I think there's, I think, I think in some ways the reader that we're trying to get at might be a little bit absent from this page. Mm. I want to go back to what Jeff said a minute ago, Amy. he, I think you're saying basically that there's a kind of subversive project where you, if you can get certain things to rise to the surface of the 
mass um, than some of the ideas that Rachel's office is seriously grappling, grappling with will start to be part of the larger conversation. Um, in an interview, uh, she said that she conceived of the prose block poems and human resources as little essays, little arguments I was having with thinkers and writers I was reading, right? So, you know, Walter Benjamin is one of them, let's say. Paul Ceylon is another. And that means that through this process, people will start encountering the ideas of Walter Benjamin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're making me think of the line um, on page 74 um, towards the end of the text block, ultimately you'll be the funnel here, right? Um, yeah, good. Um, to, yeah, I mean, we're asked to kind of be that, again, close reader or sieve for the glut of text um, and dwell with her in those conversations she's having with mm. Benjamin and others. I think we're beginning to speak to some of the stakes of the book and of this um, section in general that we're looking at. I mean, if on the one hand there's this um, speaking simultaneously to other humans and to computers, there's also a conflation of humans and computers where part of what's at stake here is do we become the internet or do we become do we start to read like machines? But the other thing, if we're talking about the ways that a sort of insidious corporate language might begin to infiltrate those who are sensitive to language, who is everyone, but in particular writers, um, then we become subverted by that language. But then maybe the larger project here is to ask if we can subvert language's subversion of us and then mm-hmm. speak through language instead of having language speak us. I love that point, right? <laughs> so making corporate speak and internet babble so intolerable or honestly difficult to read, right, um, that we have to think about it a little bit more carefully or watch out for it, right, um, seeping into our own um, discourse. And now I'm thinking also of another line from also page 74, does the unreadable drive the reader from consuming to producing? Mm. Um, so that rather than... Um, absorbing, right, um, maybe the more nefarious aspect aspects of corporate speech um, that we're forced to stop, right, um, looking at it. And it's kind of horror in this text and um, instead produce. But the thing is, Rachel doesn't, or the writer here, or the text doesn't protect itself from this insidious language. It embraces right. it because yeah. we have two choices to yeah. either, yeah. if we encounter this type of insidious language, to either do everything we can to resist it, and anytime you're resisting something, you come into a more dynamic relation with it, or to just let it in and see if you can speak through it and massage it into some kind of potential recuperation of meaning. Mm. I, I think that's right, and I also um, so I was as I was reading this, I I was thinking a, a lot about Donna Haraway for some reason. <laughs> Might just be for what I'm some teaching. Reason. That seems right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's very cyborg, right? And and this idea, so in some ways we can't help but talk about the the differences here that we're articulating as a set of binaries, right? As a set of like the, the critique of mm-hmm. corporate language versus poetic language. And I feel like at every turn, what she's trying to do is undo that, right? I mean, she's trying to unwind the very notion that we should set this up as an opposition. So like the, the idea that the corporate language infects the poetic language on these kind of little mini essays is is 
seems both there's something right about that, but also formally wrong in how the text and the whole book is just so insistent with drawing this stuff up to the surface and forcing us to read it. I mean, as soon as you think you're on a line of something that sounds like what the poet, you know, the subject poet wants to say, she just tears it out from under you, right? Which makes me think of the title of the project, Human Resources. Can the four of us just riff for a couple of minutes on all the senses of that? Jeff, do you want to start? Human Resources. Sure. I mean, one thing that we're talking about here is um, is is a sort of capitalization of the human or this sort of becoming human capital so that um, when we're talking about human resources, we're talking about sort of humanity, people as a resource. So something that's sort of fed into this machine that we're yeah. talking about. Okay. That's a good one for starters. Who Who else? I mean, we we should just say human resources departments. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we should start with that, obviously. Yeah. And um, what does that mean? Why do they call those departments human resources? It's an old phrase, I think. Yeah, yeah. Our labor, our you know, our work as a resource, our bodies as a resource, our language as a resource, right? That gets redeployed. Um, resourcing, right? I mean, I think in some mm-hmm. ways she's attempting to recite and resource some of her own language. Um, adjacent to much of Rachel Zoff's work is 20th century Jewish life and genocide. And there's a little bit of it in the, maybe more than a little in this, in the pages that we read. Mm-hmm. So human resources, we have, you know, mm. we have, um, you know, the, a machine of mass killing that renders humans into, um, you know, hair for insulation on trains and uniforms. And to take a ghoulish example. And so uh, uh, Walter Benjamin um, owns the Paul Clay uh, Anglis Novus, from which Benjamin writes about the angel of history and gives and and after his death, Gershom Sholem inherits the piece, and there's there's this really comes into his own post-war as a kind of um, forming a kind of resistance in getting back to Jewish irrationality and mysticism. All that's important to Rachel Zoff, it seems to me. And so there's another sense of it. Uh, just thinking about the angel of of history, um, it appeared for me almost in opposition to the Markov chain, right? Um, so the the very famous um, image in the painting is a face being kind of hurled towards, right, um, the future, um, but looking at the past, kind of being pulled backward um, toward the future, and is I think widely understood as a sort of cynical view of endless cycles of history. Um, Cynical, despairing, melancholy, (laughs) right? Absolutely. Can I interrupt to to ask if you think that this work uh, stands, endorses that melancholy view of the unceasing cycle of despair in history? I think it endorses it more than it endorses its own method of the Markov chain, I would say, yeah. Interesting. In that the Markov chain is, um, lacks memory, Right. Um, but that in um, Anglis Novus, we, they're there and we have to attend to them and attend to history. Well, I would say also, I mean, if, if, the, if the angel of history can't look away from the catastrophe mm-hmm. of the past mm-hmm. um, and we want to think about that as a model for something that's going on here where 
um, the writer, instead of looking away from this insidious sort of wreck of language, mm-hmm. is looking back toward it. There is a sense that um, going back to that notion of it can be recuperated somehow um, back into um, poetry, back into um, questioning the aims of what it is we're trying to do with language and and how poetry is supposed to relate to other acts of um, of linguistic exchange. Um, I think there is a sort of hopefulness and a counter cynicism within that act of of turning toward this wreckage and then seeing what you can glean from it. And it doesn't seem cynical to me. Mm-hmm. I think it does seem less cynical, again, than the sort of memorylessness of the Markov chain, ironically being, again, a method deployed here. I'm not quite remembering, but I feel like the – so in Benjamin, it's it's – you know, the, the past is, is a pile of wreckage. You use that word, right? So it's like a, it's a pile of fragments and scraps, right? Um, and I feel like we get that with the language here. And when even when she brings up the angel of history here, it's like the angel of history, and then I put a slash after it, right? Because then it the words just seem to go off the rails, right? And a number um, is inserted. Um, yeah. And the numbers throughout um, we haven't talked about but are so interesting to me. Um um, most simplistically, just as this sort of intrusion of like um, quantitative data, um, maybe being presumably more privileged, um, is as data over kind of qualitative knowledge in some of the vernaculars that the text is absorbing, like HR, like corporate speak, like the white collar workplace. This may be a stretch, but um, I reread Benjamin's essay. Um, in which he talks about the Paul Clay painting. And there's a line in there that just made me think of this work. Um, this is Benjamin on the painting. Where we, where we see the appearance of a chain of events, he sees one single catastrophe which unceasingly piles rubble on top of rubble and hurls it before his feet. And the numerology and the numbers strikes me as generating some mm. rubble. Yeah which sort of turns poetry into a, potentially a single catastrophe in which we can't help but look at the rubble around us. I don't know. Is that a stretch, Jeff? I don't think so. And I think one thing that we might be recognizing here is that, you know, it's easy to be overwhelmed by what we imagine the angel can see. Mm. But the other thing that's happening is that the angel can see everything, the angel wouldn't see it the same way that we would if we were in that position. We might only be able to recognize this huge pile of wreckage, but the angel is really seeing absolutely everything. So something that's going on that I really just realized in the new recording that Rachel did because of the way she was articulating it, but in that line on 75, like the angel of history, few 493 changes remember, etc., that 493 that inserts itself there is some kind of interruption then there's this really neat trick right after it to have changes remember. Changes throws us off a little bit. Um, we're, we're trying to relate that back to history. But if you, if you group together 493 changes and sort of parenthesize that, then we have like the angel of history, few remember. Yes. Mm. And it doesn't take that much work to get it, but it does take work. Does the unreadable drive the reader from consuming to producing or all the 66 what good time is death bells and whistles of the ineffable? 
Despite les soixante retard, like us born that uppity year, poetic Jewish coverage plus pregnant 3984 language isn't revolutionary enough. Ensconced in the academy, pleasuring in the beautiful excess of the unshackled referent, poetry can't stock food banks, warm bodies, or stop genocide from affecting my RSP. Ultimately, you'll be the funnel here at the brink, should we brief you and brainstorm, transgress the Markov chain before game over? So on 74 verso and 75 recto, we have in the middle of each a smart critique, smart as in smart aleck in a way, of the academy and its relation to poetry. Let me read the two sentences if I can and invite everybody just to comment. Ensconced in the academy, pleasuring in the beautiful excess of the unshackled referent, poetry can't stock food banks, warm bodies, or stop genocide from affecting my RSV, RSP. RSP is the Canadian version of a 401k. Um, and then on the, uh, on, the, on the recto, a multi-sexed academic friend calls our libidinal desire around knowledge masochistic. They'd prefer a softer approach to flesh out the whole picture. All right. Whitney, you want to start on that? <laughs> Where to begin? I mean, she's not wrong, right? I mean, <laughs> okay, so explain why you think she's not wrong. I mean, she's not wrong. So poetry ensconced in the academy, pleasuring in the beautiful excess of the unshackled referent, poetry can't stock food banks. Like, she's, she's not wrong about that. It's a very materialist approach to thinking about what poetry can and can't do in the world. Um, but I love that she 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 brings it in here and forces us to see that. Um, I think it goes back to what you were saying about uh, the next line, right? Ultimately, you'll ultimately you'll be the funnel here at the brink. Like it's such a beautiful line. It's a great line. It's a really great line. Yeah. And especially coming right after a line that's talking about the sort of ineffectiveness right. of poetry to make change, and then suddenly we have this thing that poetry really can do. Is this where hope comes back, then, Jeff? Potentially. Let's look at the line. Ultimately, you'll be the funnel here at the brink. Should we brief you and brainstorm, transgress the Markov chain before game over? That's really good. Mm. Anybody want to comment on that? Well, I think one thing that's happening here is that, you know, um, one thing that we're seeing, and um, this goes back to a point from earlier um, about, um, about, you know, how the, how the Markov chain is, is being used. But I think there's a sense that Rachel in interviews and conversations, she always talks about um, being an, um, if she's a proceduralist, it's always impure. If there is any conceptual, um, conceptualism in her writing, it's always impure. And I think of that as her hands are always on the process. So if she uses any kind of generative procedure, she's going to take the results and and um, and touch them and, and in massage that way, them. And in that way, transgress right the procedure. Absolutely. Yeah. Amy, our our libidinal desire around knowledge is masochistic, says a multi-sexed academic. What does that mean? Can we just translate that? Um, our libidinal desire around knowledge is masochistic. I loved this line, and I loved the ensconced in the academy, pleasuring in the beautiful excess of the unshackled referent. I think, to me, both of those lines you read, Al, are just so, as we've said, but um, self-referential and self-mocking and kind of earned a lot of faith with me, even as a reader, um, so that then when... Um, it's put in our hands to be the funnel and maybe even transgress 
this experiment that is, right, um, pleasuring in the beautiful excess of the unshackled referent um, that we're asked to, again, maybe move on, move beyond um, the limitations of this experiment. I mean, I was just thinking, um, as you were talking, Amy, maybe we could connect it back to write for peckers, right? Uh I mean, how to write for the internet, write for skimmers, write for peckers. Our libidinal desire around knowledge is called masochistic by this multi-sex academic friend. Um, there's a lot, there's so much going on here, right? And it's, it's actually, I I find, um, it harder to unpack the more I read it in many ways. What would the softer approach be? I think that's what I wonder about with this line, right? Um, you know, is well, um, it's in scare quotes. We should say, right? It's a joke, mm-hmm. right? Softer approach, mm-hmm. yeah. Especially in relation to writing for peckers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this this is a poetry that can be very unsparing, that can be very barbed, right? So there is a kind of self consciousness there about um, the the ways that poetry can help us think critically and can deconstruct our illusions and assumptions. But there is another thing that poetry does that brings us comfort and um, and sings to us. And that's something that I think this book does very well. It's doing both of those things at the same time, but there are still always intention. So I think there's a sense that there, you know, the text is thinking about itself there. When I talked with Rachel, and I don't always do this for poem talk. Sometimes I just pick and we talk. But I, you know, I worked with her a little bit on the selection. And she noted that the section of pages that I chose turns out to be less about her time as a corporate writer, less about human resources, office talk, and more, quote, more about Jews and general economy and art and waste. So I just want to consider the more about Jews part for a second. What I want to do is read very briefly from two other parts of the book and then ask any of you to talk about the Jewish themes in our pages. So first from page 13, on our side of the family, sweet bald-headed Jesus saw God write about being Jewish. And the next line is, not special treatment, which of course refers to the bureaucratic language that the Nazis used to describe people who were going to be gassed. Not special treatment, but a sense of the new look of nothing. And then just to throw out one more, on page 31, she quotes Anne Carson on Paul Ceylon as follows. What is lost when words are wasted? And where is the human store to which such goods are gathered? In that it was I, for on you he be with. So can we talk a little bit about the Jewish theme? What, you, what do you think that Rachel meant when she told me that this section of pages is more about Jews in general economy and art and waste than about human resources? What do you think? Well, I think it would help to anchor it there with um, um, the text block on page 78. So what's the use of Jews writing limericks, half not even paying, um, and then check back on that stanza, which I thought was pretty lovely and clever, not um, just checking back, but getting your check back or, right. again, um, playing on the um, kind of offensive um, trope of of Jews not even paying or half not even paying her, right? Um, also, the numbers to me seem very sinister in the context of that particular um, 
They Paul. really do. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about human resources and you think about Jews and genocide and you think about numbering mm-hmm. those human resources, what, can, what else can you think of? Jeff, um, how does this theme work for you? I mean, one thing I was noticing just overall about the ways that Rachel's concern, her poetics and her concerns over the course of her career are all things that she was thinking about before this book, things that she's been thinking about since then are all filtered through here and filtered through the particular concerns about corporate language that she's dealing with here. So I was sort of going through and thinking about what are some of these concerns. One of them was Jewishness. Jewishness. It's a thing that comes up in her poetry. Um, it's sort of one of the themes that she reverts, she returns to. But what I notice about the way that it comes up in this section is that when Jewishness comes up, anti-Semitism all tends to accompany it. So it's like you can't, the, the poem can't bring in one without bringing in the other. So there's this general insidious context that, that comes with it. And I think there's... Um, that's just something that struck me about that. Thank you. Well, we could talk a long time about human resources. There's just so much to say about this work. And we've said a lot, but we don't have infinite amounts of time. So why don't we go around and each of us can say one more thing that you came here ready to say, but haven't had a chance to yet about this work. Whitney, you want to start? Yeah, just kind of in preparing for for talking with y'all today, I was, you know, rereading the back, kind of looking over the way that the book presents itself. And I kept coming across the word plain, right? Poetry and plain language collide in human resources. And I've been thinking a lot about that word plain since, um, on the one hand, I'm thinking about plain text, the the kind of stripped down, unformatted text that she's working with to do the Markov chain generation, right? Kind of digital text, internet text, text that's somehow freed from from its materiality. Um, but so I'm I'm also in my other other life an early modernist, and in in the Renaissance, plain also means full. So you might see like um, you are plain of of competence, right? You are, are plain of contradictions, but you're full of contradictions. So um, I just love that on the one hand, you know, her language is plain, but it's also so full in being plain. Um, and I, I, I think that that kind of thinking through that word helped me, um, helped me parse a lot of what she's doing in this book. Fantastic. Thank you. Amy, final thought? Yeah, just um, a quick one. Um, since we began our conversation talking about the um, speed at which um, Rachel reads these poems, the um, kind of simulation of, of speed um, being kind of awashed, awash in the, this kind of surfeit of text. I kind of want to, um, I guess, attendant to your comment, Whitney, um, thinking about the kind of look of text on the page or within the pages. Um, um, do go out and and look at and read read the book too, because I think that um, um, the presentation of the text itself is doing a similar thing. So they appear to us in um, what might be seen as prose poems, but really looks just like unformatted stuff you're scrolling on an iPhone. And there's also um, a lot of hyphenation or interruptions, as if you're again scrolling through your um, phone. Um, um, as if we are reading the internet, right, um, from someone who is explaining how to write for the, the internet. Um, so I, I just like how the, um, the poems visually are also doing what they, what, they, what they do when they're read. 
and we should note that Coach House did such a beautiful job in creating the book. Um, Jeff, final thought? Yes. Um, one thing that I really love about this book, we've been talking about the ways that, um, among other things, that um, the book takes this potentially insidious, problematic corporate language and brings it back into um, a realm of poetics. Um, and I think that in addition to um, dealing with the language of the corporate environment, the other beautiful thing that this book does is it imports um, and and reutilizes the forms of corporate language. So there are all these, like the section that we're looking at begins with this kind of how-to list that looks like it comes from some, kind, some type of corporate manual. But Rachel is continually um, sort of hollowing out those forms and then re-infusing them with, um, with language, sometimes language that's um, recycled or resourced from, from the corporate environment and sometimes other things kind of get in. So that's one of the real pleasures of it for me. And when we were talking about how many sections are, or how many different poems are in this, this particular uh passage that we've been looking at, we, um, I noticed that there were, that you had said there are seven, but there, the numbers are eight here. And there's a real beautiful non-correspondence there where this ends up being a sort of false table of contents for this section. Mm. So again, every time I return to this book, new, I notice new things. And that was one that came to me this time. Just to use a sort of poem talk cliche, this is why we read poetry, (laughs) because, you know, we've, own this book for a while and just it it keeps doing what it's doing um and really that's my final thought um i'm i'm not sure what rachel would say in answer to this question and it's not set up as a question in itself but on page 74 does the unreadable drive the reader from consuming to producing and i would say at least tentatively yes that is to say producing is production of meaning. Um, I am. I think of my work in trying to understand this book, particularly in preparation for our conversation, as a kind of co-creation with with Rachel's off. Um, that's a kind of production. It's a that's a experimental production. But the move from consuming to producing, depending on how it goes, is productive. It's a, it's a positive. I'm not sure eventually in that passage what the answer would be. It might be it's all the same and it isn't revolutionary enough and it's likely to end up in the academy not stopping genocide. But I like, I like just thinking about unreadability as productive. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a sort of main idea that, that, um, that I look for in the poetry that I admire. Well... Uh, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or in the art world or in the academic world, whatever you want. Who wants to go first? Who's got one? Jeff, you're ready. I'll mention I've been reading with much pleasure the poetry and essays of Hanif Abdurraqib um, and really attending to the ways that he is listening to music, culture, and place through and between 
these different forms and really recognizing what poetry can do and what prose can do and opening up the ways that they can sort of intersect and work off of one another. Fantastic. Thank you. Whitney? Yeah, um, I wanted to mention two things. Um, I've been reading Rashida Phillips' Recurrence Plot. Um, it's really interesting uh, kind of sci-fi Afrofuturism with this interlocking time travel, really fun story, but also really conceptually interesting. That's kind of like what's on my coffee table right now. Um, but I also wanted to mention the work of Alison Parrish, and this comes more from my teaching life. Um, I found her book Articulations, um, which is also has to do with kind of the same themes that we're dealing with here, um, computer generation, um, stochastic processes to be really generative. Students find it really fascinating. Um, her every word also is in its its purity and plainness is is about the most productive and generative work I've read in a long time, even though it's so simple in many ways. But um, so so simple, it's not simple at all. Um, and I uh, just want to kind of give a plug for those two books. Great. Say the titles again. Um, Alison Parrish's Articulations is the computer-generated book of poetry, and Rashida Phillips' Recurrence Plot is the Afrofuturist time travel story. Thank you. Fantastic. Amy? Absolutely. I'd love to give a shout-out to Raquel Salas-Rivera, um, who's been doing amazing things in their role, their civic role as Poet Laureate of Philadelphia. Um, this summer, having led a pop-up poetry festival, um, titled We Too Are Philly, uh, that featured um, lineups of poets of color, uh, the name riffing off Langston Hughes' famous poem, um, I Too. So even though the series is over, um, do check out Raquel's work in the community, but also and especially their newest collection, um, The Tertiary, which is um, came out earlier this year from Timeless Infinite Light, um, and my forthcoming review of it in Jacket too. Hey, you threw that in there. That was good. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Well, uh, I recently received a book uh, of Lutz Seiler's uh, poems uh, translated into English by Alexander Booth. Lutz Seiler is an East German-born uh, poet who's writing in the tradition of German nature poetry, but with a whole um, – added onto that the whole question of moving from east to west. Um, and uh, – it's called In Field Latin, which partly I think of as In Field Latin, but also in a kind of language that might be called Field Latin. Anyway, I just want to read a really brief poem translation. Uh, it's called Beware. As kids, we always wanted to march into other countries, but at the wood's edge were old and had to turn back. And eyeball the mother and eyeball the father, and evenings when we had to go back home, we knew they both would roll. So that's uh, Lutzeiler's poems in, rendered into English by Alexander Booth. Well, that's all the writing for skimmers we have time for today on Poem Talk. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Jeff Johnson, Amy Paith, and Whitney Trittine, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner and Adelaide Powell. Thank you, Adelaide, for joining Zach in the booth there and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner, 
and a shout-out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. For our next episode, Zach and I and a few other friends will be have traveled to Montreal, where Aaron Moray, Kara Shearer, and Deanna Fong will gather with us in Aaron's apartment to talk about a poem called Kitsilano by an important but not well-enough-known poet who was part of the Vancouver poetry scene in the 1960s and later, Maria Hindmarch. This is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>